Hi, welcome to the podcast. Today we're reading from Nehemiah 1, and these are the words of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And we thank God for his word, for how it speaks to us today. I wonder if you've ever heard the term inciting incident before. You see, we live in a culture that's steeped in story, Irish culture, history, folklore. The way we are as a people is full of story. And the reality is that we all know inciting incidents, but maybe you just never realized it. You see, stories are all about problems that need solved, right? A wrong that needs to be overcome, a villain in need of a hero. And every problem has its own genesis, a moment at which the balance is tipped and the sense of balance or rightness is lost. What usually happens next is that the separation from this begins to raise an awareness that all is not quite right in the world. And this desire is on earth to make it right. If every story is about a problem that needs solved, then the story itself is the journey of solution. And the key moment is the inciting incident. This is the event or decision that begins a story's problem. Everything up until that moment is just backstory. Everything after it is this story. You're just past Star Wars Day a couple of weeks ago. May the Fourth be with you and all that sort of stuff. And in Star Wars, one of the best known stories, the inciting incident, is actually the moment that Darth Vader boards Leia's ship right at the start. Because there already was a civil war going on. At least that's what the kind of yellow words that go off into infinity tell us. But in boarding a ship on a diplomatic mission, the Empire shows its true colors. Leia creates the message, looking for Obi-Wan. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And after this... Everything is different. We're in the Matrix, right? The inciting incident is Morpheus' decision that Mr. Anderson is the one. After this, everything is different. Or in the Lord of the Rings story, it's actually when Bilbo comes into possession of the one ring at the bottom of the river. After this, everything is different. And I wonder where you sit today. Can you think of any inciting incidents in your life? Game changer moments. After these, everything is different type moments. 
It was 2008 and I just signed up for Facebook reluctantly. I was single, I was setting up my account and it was making suggestions for people that I may know and up popped the face of a girl I thought I knew. I thought I knew. So after doing the right thing and taking a very thorough look through all her photos, all of her photos, uh, her music and film preferences and all that sort of stuff, I decided that she, in fact, was very definitely someone I thought I knew. So then starts this whole game of waiting to message someone, right? You know, I mean, it feels like a big step from not even being friends to messaging them personally. But I did, and we started talking lots. Joy Patterson and I, up until goodness knows how late, every night talking on Facebook Messenger. And every so often, we'd be talking about a film or something like that, and I'd ever so smoothly transition to, so why don't we go and see it together? Smooth. Yep. But she never took the bait. In fact, she mainly just ignored my comments like that. So I tried a couple more times, but every time she just deflected, and I was essentially getting cyber knocked back, right? Not interested. And Christmas and New Year's were coming around, and I mean, it's party season, and the big question of who am I going to take to parties came up, mistletoe and all of that sort of stuff, and I just didn't get it, right? I mean, we were talking for hours every night, I was getting the vibes, but on the outside she just wasn't interested, so Christmas comes around, and after careful consideration I had to do the right thing, right? I just, you know, I knew I needed to do the right thing. So I asked another girl out. Now, she was a thoroughly lovely girl, far too good for me, in fact. But unfortunately, it just wasn't to be. She wasn't the right one for me. But little did I know that right after Christmas, an inciting incident was taking place elsewhere. Because right after New Year's, I got tagged in a photo with this other girl. And somewhere in cold rain, a fuming Joy Patterson was glaring at a screen and asking the question, Who the heck is that girl? And the rest is history. She realised she liked me. She got in touch. We went out and eventually we got married. But it all started with an inciting incident. And after that, everything was changed. Right here in Nehemiah 1, we're reading the inciting incident of Nehemiah's life. We're watching the moment that a purpose is on earth and after which everything is different. This is the start of a new series called Blueprint. And we're going to be walking through the whole book of Nehemiah over the next number of months, watching on as the most incredible picture of a city literally rebuilt and a people totally transformed and renewed is going to play out in the pages right in front of you. It's an incredible story of leadership, integrity, the power of prayer, vision, repentance, dealing with problems. And our prayer as we encounter this story is that it connects with ours as a church, as we seek to be a church who want the rebuilding of the city of Belfast and the transformation of its people. These people all around us, maybe sitting around you right now. What would it look like to see the transformation that Nehemiah saw right here? What would it look like? And what would it look like for me and for you? What role would you play? I want you to keep those questions in your mind over the next months while we walk through this story, while we study the blueprint. So, quick background, right? So you get the context for this story. It's around 445 BC, and we're with Nehemiah. He's in the Persian city of Susa, and he's there because of events that have happened long before him. Because in 586 BC, the Babylonians sacked the city of Jerusalem, like they completely destroyed it. The holy city, the temple that Solomon built, was completely ransacked. But not only that, when they conquered the people and they ruined the city, when they set off on their way for home, they took with them all of the talented, smart, wealthy, beautiful people and they left behind just the smallest remnant in Jerusalem. 
But just like so often in the Old Testament narrative, one empire was pretty quickly engulfed by another. So in 539 BC, which was 47 years after the Babylonians smashed Jerusalem, the Persians under Cyrus the Great defeated the Babylonians. That's actually one of the narratives played out in the book of Daniel, which, which talks about the clashing of empires. And so this is why Nehemiah finds himself in Persia. And miles away in Jerusalem, still a remnant had remained the whole time. But God had started this prophetic movement, raising up leaders to restore God's people to the land. So first comes a movement led by Zerubbabel in 539 or 538 BC. And this whole movement was about restoring the temple in Jerusalem. And then this second movement comes in 458 BC and it's led by Ezra. And it's all about spiritual renewal, right? Essentially, when Zerubbabel goes and they start to rebuild the temple, they discover that the people who had remained there had all sorts of bad moral practice going on. They were doing things like intermarrying with the people around them. They weren't looking after the poor. And this movement was to try and undo it all. And then finally we get to Nehemiah. And in this first chapter we're watching him have the inciting incident of his life. It's just been awakened in him. Watching someone have purpose unearthed in their life. We live in a time where purpose is so very taken with this deep desire for a life of consequence and purpose, aren't we? I mean, no one has an attitude to life that's just happy going quietly off into the background. Nobody wants this life to end as a nobody. When do you ever see a gravestone like that? Dave was an average person who did little significant things in his life. You never see that, right? Because everyone wants to be somebody and we want to give ourselves to things that really count. And I so believe that come the end of our lives, we all want to be able to say that we made our mark in this world. That whether it's just the one person that we commit to, or dozens we employ, or hundreds we lead, that they have flourished more because of what we gave our life to. So we're watching purpose on earth in Nehemiah's life. And I hear and I see so often from people that they long for an experience like that. So what did he do? Well, the first thing he did was he asks. Let's just jump straight in in verses 1 to 3, right? This is what it says. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah asks, See, the reality is that it had been 150 years since Jerusalem was taken and ruined, and he hadn't been born there. He was born in Persia. He'd never even been to Jerusalem. So the incredible thing about this whole journey with Nehemiah that we'll be discovering over the coming weeks is just how deeply committed and resilient and determined he is to this project, and yet the start point is that he didn't actually even know about Judah's plight until right now. He would have known about Ezra's journey back to Judah and knew the temple had been rebuilt, even though it was shabby and nothing like it used to be. But he finds himself in this moment and realises that he's the only one he actually cares about the city. He's essentially asking, who is going to care about this city? So he asks, and he finds out three things. First thing he finds out is that the people are in great trouble and disgrace. They're a shell of a people. They're struggling, demoralised, they're destitute, they're poor. Second thing he finds out is that the walls are broken. And in the culture of that time, right, walls were a big deal. I mean, no walls meant that you were wide open to raiders. It meant rape and pillage and all of that sort of stuff. So inversely, having walls meant safety and security. It fundamentally meant that you could build your culture and you could thrive. No walls, no safety, no culture, no flourishing. 
And thirdly, it meant that this God, that his God was not glorified. Why? You see, in that, those times there were many regional gods. People essentially believed that your success or your flourishing was completely intertwined with how powerful your God was. So to a city with a people in disgrace, with walls that are ruined, people would have just looked on and thought, your God is pathetic. He's a joke. And in a way, it's like what Nicky Gumble says of empty church buildings when he says, they are like the abandoned palaces of a long-forgotten king. So Nehemiah asks, and that's the beginning of the inciting incident. These questions are the moment his life changes forever. And I want to say today that we so need to ask God about his purposes in this generation, in this city. What are you asking for? What are you asking about? And if your prayers were answered, would anybody ever notice? Would the city be any different? Would anything outside of your world be any different? Asking questions is the most important thing we can do if we want to unearth purpose. Because so many things can happen when we start asking questions. Questions change the world. Like take relationships, for example. They had to start somewhere, didn't they? You may have some of the closest, most intimate, most brilliant relationships with people in your lives. And I'm sure for most people, if they're like mine, they started today with just a conversation about coffee or over coffee or about a match that you watched at the weekend or a TV show that you're into. They just started when you asked a question. David never knew one day when he was out in the field working as a shepherd that elsewhere Samuel would ask, have you any other sons? Sometimes, sometime later, he becomes God's anointed king. Questions. Jesus comes into the world. He asks his followers, do you want to be my disciple? Questions. And even today, we know so often that people aren't prepared to listen to anything until they've first been heard. Questions. Questions change the world. Just about every great initiative, development or innovation started with someone asking the question, why is this this way? And if we want to follow the blueprint for rebuilding a city and transforming a people, then we have to become a people who ask, what are you asking for? What are you saying to God? Why is this way about? The questions you ask will determine your purpose and your destiny. Nehemiah asks. But secondly, Nehemiah feels. This is what it says in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah doesn't just feel he weeps. And I want to ask today, just because it's just come up, what was the last thing you wept about? I don't just mean personal pain or tragedy or great TV or whatever. I mean, the last time you saw something or heard someone, you just wept. You just find yourself broken. A short time after our daughter Elle was born, Joe and I find ourselves as the parents of this newborn baby with all of the incredible joy and challenges of a newborn baby. And the big new stuff of the time seemingly was just stuff around abortion. Whether it was tragic stories about women travelling to England to have abortions or big headline stories about back alley abortions or even just debates that featured all sorts of detail about how the procedures carried out around the world time and again, we both just find ourselves just watching the news or listening to people's stories and just weeping. I'm not trying to get all political or anything like that. Please, please hear me in that. But we just find ourselves broken for something that I think breaks the heart of God. And this whole topic of feeling is so crucial in an age of disorientation. I mean, just think, right? You have access to just about all the suffering of the world right here in your pocket right now. I mean, we can watch and look at just about as much as we can stomach, right? 
I mean, at any moment, we could be looking at a bombing in Iraq, the body of a Syrian toddler being washed up on the beach, an ISIS beheading, and on and on and on and on and on. Even though we have more access and information than ever before, most of us, if we're really honest, just find ourselves pushing it off. Like watching something and saying to yourselves, man, that's just too much. We feel powerless, don't we? And we recoil. We look away. And after a while, when we've seen so much of it, it just becomes familiar and we get numb altogether and eventually we just don't even see it anymore. It's not just what we're seeing, right? It's the way that we receive it. Speaking in his book, Strange Days, Mark Cyrus says this, Our mental environments daily become a confusing blend of horror, distraction and fun. Our portable devices mean that we are always receiving a torrent of information, checking Facebook for the details of a party invite. One can see the news about a terrifying event half a world away. For most of history, news was so hard to gather and expensive to deliver, its hold on our inner lives was kept inevitably in check, reflects philosopher Alan de Botton. Now, however, it is everywhere. So much of the time, we're just bombarded with the devastating of this world, sandwiched in between the social and the ridiculous. It's the anchor man news stories of, and now this, where we feel the need to lighten the burden somehow of what we're feeling because of what we've just seen by looking at something else. We look away. And pretty soon it's not the news segment in Syria we remember, it's the viral video of the dog. And that's the analogy of our lives if we're not careful. Carrying around, sharing, responding to the viral funny video of a dog or a fail or whatever. Just racing past the suffering of the world. It's like that eternal line in Hotel Rwanda when the media shows up and they say, Well, at least the world will know. And the reporter says, I think when the world sees this, they'll say, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. And then they'll just go on eating their dinner. And that's it, isn't it? That's us. But not Nehemiah. He feels. He weeps. He feels the burden of what he's just been told. And he doesn't push it off. He holds it. He doesn't let it drop. You know, in the Jewish calendar, it turns out that it took about a month between him hearing the news and doing something about it. A month just sitting with the burden, wrestling with it. Letting it eat into him. Get into his bones. Because if there's no burden, there's no breakthrough. We sing and we say those words all the time. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And so often in life, if God wants to use you, he'll break your heart for someone, something else. And I believe that God is going to break the hearts of people in this room for this city. Blueprint for purpose is ask, feel. And thirdly, it's pray. Just listen to this prayer for a second. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and he keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people. 
by whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Prayer was a big element of Nehemiah's life. There were over 11 prayers in this book. Seven of them were pretty well known. And right in the middle of testing times, and I feel that I should remind you that Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He was a government official in an important position. He was a top-level civil servant, if you will. He's not a priest or a scholar. But prayer had saturated his life. There was no secret secular divide, just his life. And prayer was a big part of it. And if you ever wanted to see a master class on prayer, this is it. It's an incredible prayer. I mean, first, just look at it. I mean, just look at the language that it uses. It's the prayer of someone deeply committed to a people when just a short time before he wasn't even aware at all of their plight. There's a couple of amazing things in this prayer. The first is this. first that he looks up. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We were just talking about this two weeks ago. When we, when we thought about the whole topic of worship, there's a deep need inside us all to worship because when we look up, we position and locate ourselves, find our sense of place beneath the one who is greater than us. I mean, Nehemiah works for probably the most powerful man on earth, and yet he locates himself under one who is greater. You know, I think when we read Cupbearer, it's really easy to feel like, ah, oh, he, he was just a butler, really. He was just a servant. But cupbearer was so much more than that. One Bible commentator says the cupbearer to the king was, quote, recognized dignity, entirely trustworthy, and the king's confidant, the next in rank to princes. That's how big a deal this was. He was confidant to the most powerful man on earth. He had his favor, and yet he sought the favor of one greater. In verse 10, he asked for favor in the presence of this man. He's just a man, and you're God. He looks up and he locates himself. Secondly, he repents. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He immediately acknowledges, right, that he's a part of the problem. And that's astonishing. Because there was no them and us. There was no Lord. They did this. And thank God I'm not like them. Unlike our world and unlike our leaders, there was no blame culture. There was no shame culture. He praises one of the Judites, even though he wasn't born there, even though he'd never been there. He was them. Thirdly, he praised God's word. This is what it says. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. I find this probably the most incredible thing, right? Because he's quoting scripture here from Deuteronomy and Leviticus back to God. He's essentially saying, I know we were this, but if we can become faithful again, will you be faithful to your word? He's using scripture to claim God's promises. Some of you will know that my wife Joy has had a journey with anxiety. As I know anxiety touches so many people in this generation, in this room. And I know she's chatted with so many of you about her journey as you have went yours. 
And the single most useful thing that she has and that she has shared with so many people is a confession of faith. And really this is just something she pulled together, drawing in scripture that speaks into her identity in God, that lets her pray it back over her life and affirm it to try and claim the promise of freedom that's in it. You know, the incredible thing about Nehemiah here is that he is encouraged by the exile, by the challenge and the pain and the dislocation that his people were experiencing. And this is not flippant. This is not him saying, ha, 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 look how badly off you are. It's not like that at all. We're talking about the person that just wept for them. But he's encouraged by it because it reminded him that God was faithful to his word. And if he could be faithful in the exile, then he could be faithful in the restoration. It reminded him that his God was reliable. And looking at the history of his people, not just the present exile, but even further than that, God had done everything that he said he would do. In the Old Testament thought, God is known for, by, known for what he is, by what he does. And he'd done everything true to his word. Raymond Brown, a Bible commentator, says this, God's words and deeds in the past fortified Nehemiah's spirit as he faced the future. Nehemiah asked, he felt, he prayed. And finally he acts. This is what it says. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. One of the markers of Nehemiah's life, which we'll see in the weeks ahead, is this character trait that he actually does what he says. I mean, I think we can all deep down testify to having moments in our life where we watch something or we experience something. And we have this experience of feeling or maybe even just expressing out loud, that's not right. But the biggest problem is that that's so often followed by something like someone should do something about that. And the thing is that there are times in life where we realize that we're going to have to be the answers to our own prayers. Times where we realize that the sense of injustice we feel, the compassion that bubbles up within us, the righteous anger, the frustration is unearthing us because it's us that God wants to use. And bizarrely, God has a track record of that using flawed, screwing up individuals for his purposes on the earth, raising up trusted servants for effective leadership in every generation. And when you think about it, it had to be a move of God in Nehemiah's life because he was right about to leave the luxury, beauty and comfort of the palace for a dispirited community in a dilapidated city he had never seen a thousand miles from his home. Why? Because he asked, he felt, he prayed, and he was about to act. And even though the people of Jerusalem couldn't have known it, would scarcely have believed it, better days were ahead. And the future was about to come rushing in.